Good morning, LifePoint. My name is Dustin Yankassi. I'm one of the campus life pastors here at LifePoint Westerville. Uh, I'm thankful to be here with you today. If you are tuning in for the first time or you're coming back, we just want to say we're grateful for you uh, stopping in and uh, being with us. Uh, we've been in a series called Asking for a Friend uh, with the idea behind it that there are questions um, out there that we want to know answers to, uh, that we'd like to know more about or, or dig into a little bit more, but the nature of those questions either are their hot button topics or we think about the kinds of conversations we'd have to go through in order to get those answers. And, you know, most likely we never engage with them. Um, and you've got to be in the right headspace and stuff. So most likely we never ask, but there is a workaround for that, right? We ask in the guise of it being for someone else. You know, I'm asking for a friend. I'm sure we've all been there. Um, so this series is kind of like that. We have these things that we think we are right on relationally. We feel we are right on relationally, but we still wonder about. We have more digging to do. So how do we go about that? We're asking for a friend. The good news is that God's word is not silent on some of life's toughest questions. Um, Even the earliest of churches had some difficulties they've had to navigate through. They had questions and they write in and and we get to benefit from uh, receiving those answers uh, in scripture. Um, So we can bring our toughest questions to God and get answers as well. This week, the question we're looking at is asking for a friend why should someone stay in a marriage if they're unhappy? Doesn't God want us to be happy? And so if you're married, we've all hit these moments where we look across the marriage and find ourselves mad, frustrated, really the opposite of happy, right? I don't know if you remember your first argument, your real argument in marriage, but I do. They kind of stick with us, I think. Um, so for, for me, it, it was a few months in and, you know, we had these chocolate covered strawberries in our freezer, right? And we had been kind of eating them throughout the week. Uh, and I get home from a long day at work and I open up the freezer and there's one left. And, and you know, me being still the immature, selfish, uh, married person that I was at the time, I was like, lucky me no thought of, maybe my wife would appreciate me leaving that one for her. So I, you know, scarf that down. She gets home from work and she opens up the freezer, hoping to find the last strawberry and she sees it empty. And she turns around with this face of like, what did you do? And I mean, and I'm responding like, what do you mean? She goes, did you eat the last strawberry? I said, yeah, I ate the last strawberry. And, you know, we get in this fight. And the worst thing about it is we had friends over. So they were in the living room watching this unfold. At first, I thought she was joking. Uh, you know, I, I, so I like, like egged her on and like made fun of her a little bit. And then I realized, oh, buddy, she's, she's not joking. And I just made things worse. So it was this horrible like fight. And I remember it, you know, even now, 15 years later, um, you know, and I remember thinking like, how often does this happen in marriage? And the answer is more often than we want, right? Where we get to these moments where we're looking across and going, man, this isn't, this isn't like I imagined. So why should I stay married if I am unhappy? Doesn't God want us to be happy? Millions of people have asked this question and the ramifications on how we answer it are potentially life altering. If you're married, I think some variation of this question has entered your mind at some point. It's not a stretch to imagine that a lot of us are asking this question right now. This question brings up two realities. One, marriage and staying married. And two, ending a marriage, divorce. You know, in talking about divorce, I thought about laying out some statistics you know, to kind of describe the ramifications of it. So uh, we can start to get a picture of it to clearly see the carnage that it leaves in its path, the damage um, 
that it leaves behind for the couples that go through it, the ramifications for the kids of divorce and how long they deal with uh, the impact of divorce uh, far beyond when it happens. But I really don't think that's necessary because I think we've seen those statistics up close and personal. For some of us, really up close. Divorce has affected a lot of people in our church. I don't think it's a stretch to say that in some manner it has impacted you. Some of you have gone through it yourself. Some of you are going through it right now. Some of you have watched your parents go through it. Some of us uh, have have loved ones that we deeply care about that we have to watch navigate um, this. And so before we look at how we answer this question, you know, why stay married if we're unhappy, I just want you to know I'm not coming in judgmentally at all on this. As a child, I went through four divorces. So I've been through um, what many of you would call one of the most painful and difficult moments of your life. I know that for some, even as I start to bring this topic up, there's something happening inside of you, this nope kind of feeling where your heart just shuts off, right? Because there's hurt in here because of what happened. And you know, even mentioning this topic, it just disengages in order to prevent further hurt. My hope is that you'd experience healing and restoration today that only can come from God. And for those of you who aren't even sure where you stand with God on this religion thing or Jesus and just where you are, just know that this is for you too, right? You don't have to be following Jesus uh, in order for this to, to help you. Because we know that there is this dissonance within us as a people to long for this type of love that will remain endure all things, never abandon us, and forever will be faithful, right? And like many vows, it's there till death do us part. Like we, we yearn for that deep kind of love. Our world sings about songs about that love. It writes books and movie scripts about that kind of love. It's like we're made for it. Yet at times we chase after it and we think we found it in that special someone. We find it difficult to keep a hold of, to maintain and be blessed by. What does that say about us? That we have this innate yearning for this deep love, yet often find it difficult to realize. I think it at least says we need help. We need help and God wants to help us. And he is not silent on matters of divorce, marriage, and the kind of love we were created for, the kind of love that we long for. So for our time today, we're just gonna look at three things. One, we're gonna look at God's design for marriage and how breathtaking it is. Second, we're going to look at how marriages can break in a broken world. And lastly, God redeems, restores, and renews even the most broken things. So God's design for marriage is breathtaking. And so we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, 6 and 7 are kind of the basis for our our series that we've been in. And for some context here, chapter 7, specifically Paul, the author, is responding to questions from the Corinthians church that they had. Um, They asked him about marriage and divorce. And we we know this because of how chapter 7 opens up. He, He writes, now for the matters that you wrote about. And then he goes into it, right? So we'll pick up in chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, where it says this. To the married, I give this command. Not, the, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband might not, must not divorce his wife. So we'll unpack this more in the second point, but he is addressing married Christians and he says, do not get divorced. If you do, then your two options are remain unmarried or reconcile with one another. 
But before that, it's important to see that he says, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. And he's referencing here the fact that Jesus has already spoken on this matter. And we'll see that in Matthew 19, when Jesus responded to the Pharisees who questioned him about divorce. And and before we read it, it's important to notice when Jesus, or when questions um, about divorce come up, Jesus zeroes in on God's design for marriage. So when questions about divorce comes up, Jesus doesn't even address divorce specifically. He talks about God's design for marriage. It's like he won't let them talk about one without the other. Verses three in Matthew 19 says, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I love this. Jesus doesn't even answer the question about divorce directly. He takes them to the very purpose of marriage. Specifically, he speaks from, from the beginning when both humanity and marriage were created, were started by God in Genesis chapter two. And and framing questions about divorce in light of God's design for marriage is important for at least two reasons. First, it tells us why marriage is so deeply embedded in our hearts. Across time, cultures, and all over the world, there has been marriage. And no one has had to come and introduce it to people to to try to tell them how it works or convince them to give it a try. Humanity has just always found itself in marriages. And this is why. This is how deep it goes. This is, it goes back to all the way to creation. That explains some of the desire part, right? We were created for, it was created for us. But the second reason it's important is it shows us that marriage has a design that we have to deal with when we enter into it. Marriage has a design that we have to deal with when we enter into it, right? Marriage is designed by God to thrive and operate in a certain way. So imagine like picking up a hammer, right? Hammers have to be used in a way that they were designed for if, if it's going to optimally function, right? That's by design. You could try to push against that design and pick it up and try to chop wood or, or cut drywall, right? And, and it's not going to go so well. It's not made that way. It's not made to function that way. So what's this mean for marriage? It means for the times that you and I are in a season of tension with your spouse, we'll call those days that end with why, uh, the times you've been wronged or in the wrong, and you just feel all the feels, and you read in the Bible or talk to someone who gives you biblical advice, and you come across, or you read or hear, you need to forgive your spouse. You need to work towards forgiveness. You need to put their needs above your own. You need to serve them. And there's something that happens in you that you start to push back against those words from God. You start to make your case against following it. And we start to say to ourselves, you don't know how much they or how bad they, don't tell me what I need to do. You have a very real example that I think we can all identify with at some point where although we've entered into God's design for marriage, we are pushing it back against how it was designed to thrive. God tells us in his word, this is how it flourishes. This is how it functions. And we go out and cut drywall with a hammer and wonder why it's not working so awesome. Marital health comes when we align with God's design. So if this is true, 
we need to look at how God has designed marriage. What is the ideal? How was it created to flourish? And so Jesus gives us a big part of this when, he, when we read Matthew 19. It continues. He answered the Pharisees, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his mother, father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. First thing we see in God's design is we see this one flesh repeated twice. One male, one female, one flesh, one lifetime. Marriage is deep oneness, emotionally, physically, mentally, financially, spiritually. You are no longer two, but one. Marriage fuses two lives together. And this oneness is intended to be unbroken. What God has joined together, let not man separate. This helps us better understand why it's so harmful, why breaking a marriage through divorce is so harmful to the parties involved. When you remove two fused things, it does damage to both parts. Second, and going back to creation, Jesus is showing us the priority of marriage in God's design. So in creation, in the garden, God did not put a parent and a child. That is not the most fundamental relationship. In the garden, he did not put two people of the same gender to be besties, to be best friends, right? That's not the most fundamental relationship. With all that had to get done now that he created everything, he didn't put a boss and a worker. That's not the most fundamental relationship. In the marriage, or in, in, in the garden, it's marriage. That's the most fundamental earthly relationship. It's the most powerful one shows us the priority of marriage in God's design. And so when you look at the importance of marriage by design, is this true for you in your marriage? Is that weight that we see in the garden the same weight that you see when you look in on your marriage? Us married people have to sit under this, this weight, this importance, and deal with the priority that God has given to marriage. We can't just say, use words only, my marriage is important. We have to measure where we are against and gets the design. We have to do the difficult heart work of, we have to look at our careers. Man, has this taken more of a driver's seat? Has this, this become the most fundamental thing in my life? We have to look at our schedules and go, man, am I more concerned as the most fundamental relationship that I'm concerned about, you know, how successful my kids are? And so we fill our schedules and our minds with things that align with that. And then our marriage gets leftovers. Marriage was designed to be the most fundamental, important earthly relationship. And so I'll try to be quick with this last one about God's design. There's a lot here. Um, If anyone is unhappy in their marriage, is in the midst of asking our question today and finding it difficult to feel anything else, I'd, I'd say marriage was meant to have roots that go deeper than feelings. A love wrapped up in only feelings has too shallow of a roots to thrive. More depth is needed. And God talks in a few places where that anchor is, is how deep that anchor is supposed to go when he talks about marriage as a covenant, a covenant. And this can be hard to grasp what a covenant is because we operate more in contracts in our world today than we do covenants. Even in our approach to love, And maybe no other deviation from the design of marriage is as detrimental 
as treating marriage as a contract rather than the covenant it was designed to be. And so what's the difference? A contract relate or a covenant relationship, I'm sorry, says, I love you. I am yours. I choose you and I will stay for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health. Whatever the circumstances, I am here. I am devoted to you. And even, this is important, even when you don't hold up your end, I will hold up mine. Because that would be circumstantial. Even when you don't hold up your end, I will hold up mine. That's incredibly deep. That's how God loves us, by the way. And marriage was created by design to be a covenant, to be that. A contract, in contrast, says, as long as you do, I will, right? Here are the terms. If you break your side, I'm, I'm free of my part. You hear this a lot. If they don't make you happy, then leave. That's the basis of our question today, right? A contract love is shallow, It's fragile to the circumstances of life type of love. If you think love is wrapped up in how only someone makes you feel, you will only love someone to the extent that they make you feel that way. In a very real way, you're you're saying, I love you because of how you make me feel, which is the same as saying, I love how you make me feel, which we might as well make the jump and say, I love me and you're useful in that. The shallowness gets more visible when we reduce love to only emotions and no one writes their wedding vows or dreams for their marriage to be like this. And yet it can be the operating system if we don't catch marriage being designed to be a covenant and submit ourselves to that. God's, marriage, or God, God's design for marriage is beautiful. However, point two is marriages can break in our broken world. Marriages can break in our broken world. In Matthew 19, after the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, it continues. Verse seven says, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They think they got Jesus in a corner because they start to reference uh, Deuteronomy 24, where Moses says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in a hand and sends her out of the house. Okay, but Jesus answers, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed for you to be divorced. But from the beginning, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So what is he saying here? He explains that Moses wrote divorce as an allowance because of their hardened hearts, because of their sin and brokenness inside of them. He says, but from the beginning, from creation, from design, this was not so. Divorce was not in God's original design for marriage, but marriages can break in our broken world because of our brokenness, not by design. So Jesus, in essence, answers, certificate of divorce? There's so much more going on here than a piece of paper. So it kind of begs the question, is it ever okay to divorce? In Matthew 19, Jesus gives us an exception. He says, except for sexual immorality. And this word here is is, is kind of a general term, but from the context of this, where he's been talking about this one flesh union, I think it's clear that he's referring to a spouse who violates that one flesh union 
with someone else through adultery. And notice, it doesn't command it. They say, why does Moses command this? It doesn't command that. It doesn't say it's mandatory, not inevitable, but it's possible if adultery is there. You got to recognize that this teaching in Matthew 19 comes on the heels of Jesus teaching his, teaching his followers in Matthew 18 to forgive extravagantly. God has and can redeem even adultery in a marriage. In addition to adultery, jumping back to 1 Corinthians 7, Paul mentions another instance where it's possible to divorce. Verses 12 through 15. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So if a couple was married, and they were both unbelievers, but God got a hold of one, one person in that marriage and saved them, and now they're on different playing fields in faith, and difficulties come up, and they're having problems, what should they do? Should they split? Paul says, no. As long as the unbeliever is willing to stay in the marriage, stay in the marriage. Don't back out. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. Now, verse 14 can on the surface sound a little tricky. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. That's not saying that because the believer is now present that they save the unbelieving spouse, because they're so-called unbelievers here in this verse. But it is saying that, in a sense, blessing is poured out on the family as a result of one person following the Lord. We see this in scripture that that God chooses to bless an entire household because of one person's uh, faith. Laban was blessed because of Jacob and his whole household was blessed. Potiphar was blessed because of Joseph's presence in the house. And it's saying, hey, that this, this unbeliever will be blessed because of your presence, so stay. So these are the two instances where divorce is biblically allowable. Adultery and abandonment. Biblically, remarriage is only possible for the offended spouse after a biblical divorce. So the one who has been abandoned or to the one to which adultery was committed to. At the end of Matthew 19, we see Jesus say that outside of these reasons, God considers remarriage to be adulterous. I want to take a moment and just speak to one more thing. What about marriages where a spouse or kids are are being abused? Physical, emotional, spiritual, sexual abuse. Some difficulties come in a marriage because, hey, we're all sinful and we got to navigate and work through that. And then there's abuse. And if you are unsure of what your situation is, is it just a result of normal, I don't say normal sin, or if it's abuse, please talk to someone a counselor, a trusted friend, or pastor. This is real, and you may need help. Because before I speak on this, I've got to acknowledge that the Bible doesn't specifically address this, right? It doesn't specifically lay out what to do in these cases. And because it is explicitly laid out in Scripture, and each case is probably different, um, it's hard to make blanket statements, right? So what I thought would be best is if I just spoke with my own words. You know, I have three daughters, If I found out that one day one of my daughters was in this type of situation where they or their kids 
were being abused, what would I say to them? I mean, it, it is entirely possible that I'd be doing prison ministry from the inside if this situation happened. I don't know how I would react, but I'd want them to hear a few things. First is, is to get out of the house immediately. Come home with us. Go somewhere safe. Get out from under that. If this is you, you got to talk to somebody today that you trust. Get help. And I would make it clear that the Bible takes abuse seriously. That, that God is on their side. God hates abuse. God opposes that. No spouse or child should endure oppression or forceful domination that jeopardizes safety or well-being. And, and I'll, you know, after they're out, what I would tell them, I said, I'll assume that the guy that, that they married has claimed to want to follow Jesus with their life. So after they are safe and out of the house, what to do next depends on how that guy uses that space. That guy would have to think and wrestle through what does genuine repentance and following Jesus look like? What does it look like to be changed? And then my, my, my daughter would have to wrestle through, like, how would I know from a distance, you know, being safe? How would I know? What, what would I do? You know, what would I have to see in order to know that genuine repentance ha, ha, has happened? And after a time, if it's clear that the guy's not interested in repenting or changing and they've kind of been pursued by trusted people at the church or um, other brothers and sisters in Christ and they've rejected kind of all the counsel and, and they're kind of just stuck in their ways, I would tell my girls about the words in scripture about Christians who continue in unrepentant sin and how they should be treated as unbelievers. And I'd say, you know, this situation would sound similar to me to the abandonment that Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7. Through creating only this type of environment for you, they've abandoned you. Time has been given for them to repent. This is not on you, but it's on them. In my opinion, divorce is possible here. But you should still navigate it through prayer and wisdom. Does that make sense? Last part is God redeems, restores, and renews even the most broken things. So coming back to us today, to those of us who have been through divorce, the things that happened there were said or done to you there, even the choices in your decisions and all of it, that was outside of God's design for marriage. If you find yourself in another marriage today, I just want to comfort you. Yes, if you were remarried and there were no biblical grounds, then you should repent to God for your sin. However, you should not compound your sin by divorcing your second spouse. Rather, you should commit to loving your spouse in a way that honors the very purpose and reason for marriage in the first place. God is a God of redemption, restoration, and renewal. And there are ways that all married people can cooperate and partner with him in that work in their marriage. You know, King David started his marriage with Bathsheba in probably the most awful conditions, right? You talk about unbiblical divorce. <laughs> David fell in love with Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, then had her husband killed so he could marry her. Talk about brokenness. But when he confessed and repented, God cleansed that marriage and redeemed that marriage to the point that from that marriage came Solomon. And out of Solomon's lineage came Jesus, the Messiah. It's unbelievable to think that God would take a marriage like that and from that bring Jesus Christ through whom the nations would be blessed. 
What does that mean? If not God saying to us, I love redeeming even the most broken things. Try me. Come to me. So wherever you're coming from, whatever your history with marriage or divorce, there's hope for you because our hope is in him. So I'm going to cast a broad net here uh, uh, some of our last time and and talk about a wide range uh, of people and, and some possibilities of where to land this truth in our lives. So if you are looking to get married one day, know what marriage is and what it isn't. And get informed of that from the creator, the designer of marriage, not your family history, not what our culture says, but what God says. And work to submit to that, to align to his design. If you're divorced and single, this is potentially very difficult. Are you able to reconcile with your ex-spouse? We read very clearly if it's, if it's unbiblical divorce, God's will would either for you to be unmarried or to reconcile. But so I got to ask the question, is it possible for you to reconcile with your ex-spouse? Could you give God a chance in that? If you're in the room and have a difficult marriage, and how I would define a difficult marriage is if you're in a difficult marriage, you're married. Um, all marriages are difficult. But if you're in a difficult marriage and you're entertaining the idea of divorce, a couple of things. Know that the temptation to give up and abandon marriage vows are almost as old as marriage itself. Ever since the first husband and wife, Adam and Eve, tasted sin, it's been a broken world. But we have to grow in diagnosing what is from God and what isn't. Satan has seeded every thought of divorce as being preferable to remaining married, not God. And the thought or the the voice that we hear that God, whatever God might have to say about marriage, surely he would understand why it's different in my case. There is a voice whispering that to you and it's not God's. So I'd say put divorce out of your mind as an option. Don't consider it. Say to yourself, I'm not gonna pursue that. Pray and work the other direction. The moment we create back doors, the more circumstances can convince us to use them as exits. If you're in a difficult marriage, but you know you won't entertain the idea of divorce, divorce is not an option for you. Um, But where you take your disappointment in marriage is uh, a place where you say, think, or believe, you operate, I'll never be happy. I'm not going anywhere, but I'll just suffer and endure and settle for this less than ideal life until death. Do you believe that God can renew and redeem your brokenness, the brokenness in your marriage? However broken it is and has been, that he's bigger and more powerful? Do you believe that? God excels at redeeming even the most broken things. Would you cooperate with him as he seeks to do that? And for men in particular, our temptation can be to be lulled into sitting on the sidelines, watching everything unfold passively. And just like Adam in the garden, men, we can be guilty of that same sin, just watching passively as as our marriage kind of deteriorates. Don't be passive. Satan is not being passive. Fight for your marriage. 
And if you're wondering, how? Where, how do I take a step in that direction? A very practical way to do that and really a practical way for anyone, anyone to sow seeds of health in their marriage. Uh, so in addition to God sending us his spirit and God giving us his word, a very uh, real and practical resource that he's given that I'd encourage you to take advantage of is to look around our church. Everybody that you see that is married is in a difficult marriage just like you. Some are navigating difficulties. Some of you are navigating difficulties right now that dozens of them in our church have already walked through and worked through. And there could be a resource there to help you and encourage you and spur you on. If you just open up a little bit more, you could have that. So are you taking advantage of the resource that the church is meant to be for one another? The early church shared life together. They experienced the blessing of authentic community. I mean, God's word tells us that the people of God seek good for one another, that they love one another, that they serve one another. They don't judge one another. They bear one another's burdens. They speak truth to each other. They encourage and build up one another. They pray for one another. I don't know about you, but that sounds like amazing soil to plant seeds of health in my marriage. And we have life groups where couples come together under God's word to work stuff out. No one has it figured it out. We all need help. But one of the worst things I can imagine happening is, you know, somebody having a delicate marriage, a fragile marriage that needs help, and they come to church with this mask on. Got to look the part. Got to project that Westerville ideal marriage to the public and fake what really is going on to their marriage's detriment. Showing up at Life Group won't magically flip that switch. You could put a mask on there too. But it is a place where you have the opportunity to engage, to take steps together, both as a married couple and with one another as a church. With others who are chasing the same God who created our marriages. And so for you, would you take real, immediate steps in sowing seeds of health into your marriage by leaning, by leaning into authentic community? It's not worth the cost to hide behind a mask. Plus, it plays right into the enemy's hands. And to the last group, if you're in a marriage that is in a, is in a mix of one person being a believer and one person being an unbeliever, like we read, I, just to the unbeliever for a second in the marriage, if you know you're not following God, you know, you may be able, be able to affirm how good this Jesus thing is for your spouse, Right? You've seen them grow and change. They're more loving. Uh, they're a better spouse, maybe even a better parent. But you're just content just to let them do their thing and keep Jesus at arm's distance personally. They want you to know, and God wants you to know, it's not about being good. No one is good enough. Yet no one is too far from God, that his arms can't reach in and save them. They would want you to know, your spouse wants you to know, it's not about going to church. It's not about reading a book. It's not about checking any kind of spiritual checklist. It's about Jesus and his covenantal love for you and I, that in spite of our sin, he comes after us with his own life to rescue us. He dies on the cross to save us, to pay the penalty of our rebellion and sin against God so that he can open up his arms and welcome us in. Marriage is a picture of God's love for you. The church is Jesus' bride. And he is always faithful and will never abandon 
The ache for love that you feel in your heart, you're made to feel that and your spouse isn't meant to fulfill that ultimately, it's Jesus. It's in him that your heart drinks from and finally is satisfied. So my, my ask to you is, would you taste and see for yourself that he is good? In humility, can you admit that you need a savior? That you cannot sin, separate, that you cannot save yourself and that your sin separates you from God. In him, you can be reconciled. And as a church, I pray we would work with God towards renewing, redeeming, and maybe even reconciling our marriages. So would you pray with me to close out? God, I thank you that you give us a picture and how you love us in that covenantal deep way of how we're supposed to love our spouses. God, I confess that I fall short of that multiple times, God, but I'm not, I don't ever want to stop striving to align with your design for my marriage. God, I pray for marriages um, across our church at all of our campuses, that we would be humble, that we would humbly submit to your leading in the ways that you want to renew, redeem, and restore our marriages, God. God, I pray um, for the people in this room who just can't get past this idea of happiness, that God, that you would speak to them specifically and personally, intimately, that God, that somehow, some way they would get their eyes off their spouse and how prone we are to be disappointed when we look across our marriages for ultimately fulfillment. And God, we would shift our eyes to you. God, that we would look more at Jesus than we would at our spouse and be satisfied. God, I pray for the health of our marriages. God, I know our church is only as strong as our marriages, God. And I just pray that we would individually, the spouses would just lean into you and be obedient and follow your design for their marriage. God, we love you and we just thank you so much um, for the sacrifice of Jesus that that saves us and redeems us. In his name we pray, amen.